All right, if you could grab your seats, we'll go ahead and begin. We had a nice long time today to, uh, you know, to catch up between the first service and Sunday school, so that's great. And happy Mother's Day uh, to all of you mothers. We're grateful for you. I want to uh, spend just a couple minutes as we begin um, reviewing where we've been so far in the class. Not everyone has been here for all the classes, and uh, if you're anything like me, you know, it's you sometimes just need to regather your thoughts and just remember the ground you've covered already. So uh, week one, we talked about uh, a biblical worldview. What is a Christian worldview? And just said that it's, it's basically applying the storyline of the Bible uh, to the world that we live in and to our experience in it. Uh, the second week, we talked about engaging a secularized culture uh, and that the increasing kind of conflict tension in culture is uh, fundamentally about a conflict in worldviews down underneath. And then the third week, we talked about listening to the news. The fourth week, we talked about homosexuality and tried to apply a biblical worldview to that topic. And then last week, Brian Lawner discussed sexual harassment. Uh, It's immoral. It's sinful. Um, dehumanizes others and rebels against um, God's purposes for sexual intimacy, and yet Christ died on the cross naked and so clothes us in the righteousness of God, and there's the hope of restoration and healing uh, in the end. And now this week we turn to transgender issues. So this cultural moment that we're living in has been described as the transgender moment. Um, There was, I I think, uh, as one person put it, a a lot of... uh, there was quick success uh, by the homosexual activists um, in, in coming to 2015 in the Obergefell decision uh, in the Supreme Court, uh, much quicker than anyone really anticipated. And then there was an immediate pivot uh, in that LGBT community uh, toward the transgender part of that community and advancing those rights and concerns. And so it's been really prominent in the news over the past couple years in particular. And, uh, and so we are going to talk about that this morning. We did, we did say that there has been this um, sort of revolution, this moral revolution going on uh, in the U.S., um, tectonic shifts down underneath over generations are kind of surfacing now in a revolution of, of sexuality in particular. So that um, there are these three phases that one theologian described to a moral revolution. What was once uh, condemned is now celebrated. What was once celebrated is now condemned. And that those who will not celebrate um, are condemned for not celebrating. And you see all of those dynamics happening. And this revolution is moving very quickly. Uh, so quickly, in fact, that with some of these issues, uh, there's a steep learning curve, even just in getting the vocabulary down uh, for how to talk about some of these things. And so we'll begin this morning um, simply by trying to understand gender dysphoria, which is sort of the underlying um, uh, mental health concern uh, beneath transgender issues. Uh, and just by the way, in preparing the material for this class, I have leaned fairly heavily on uh, Mark Yarhouse. So even where I don't explicitly reference him uh, in the talk this morning, a, a lot of what I'm saying or how I'm thinking about this has been drawn from uh, from him and especially from his book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Navigating Transgender Issues in a Changing Culture. It's a short little book. 
um, just that long. So if it's something that you'd like to think more about from a biblical <coughs> worldview, this would be a great book um, to read. So first of all, we'll just talk about understanding gender dysphoria. What is gender dysphoria? Uh, gender dysphoria is what happens when biological sex, uh, biological sex, which is determined by chromosomes, uh, hormones, reproductive anatomy, things like that, and gender identity, which is a person's inner sense of themselves as male or female. When those two things, biological sex and gender identity, are not in congruence with one another, and that creates a dissonance uh, in a person's experience. It's distressing, very difficult, and that, that is gender dysphoria. So some who have, have this experience have described it like this. If girls are yellow and boys are red, I felt orange. Another person described it like puzzle pieces that just permanently don't fit together. Uh, like you don't belong in your body. Another person talked about something called proprioception, uh, something like one of the five senses, maybe like a sixth sense. It's this sense that the parts of my body are actually parts of my body. And then said that some people have a, a body map that doesn't align with what's actually physically there, uh, like a woman who has a male concept of self or a bi- biological male who may feel like a woman trapped in the body of a man. So there's, there's not an alignment between uh, biological sex and gender identity, this internal sense of maleness or femaleness. Uh, maybe a woman who in her dreams is almost always a man, or if you're, you're married to a man, um, sorry, if you're a man married to a woman, just imagine going to your wife's closet and opening up the door and, and having to wear those clothes each day. You know, that might be what a woman um, who feels like a man may, may feel. So you can sort of feel the difficulty of that experience, uh, the incongruence there, and the distress it may cause. So a couple of weeks ago, I suggested that homosexuality is something like a mismatch. You know, your body parts say that you're completed by the opposite sex. Uh, but maybe your romantic inclinations say you're completed by the same sex. And so in that sense, there's a mismatch. Well, similarly, gender dysphoria is, is something like a mismatch. You know, your body parts say that you are one sex, but your feelings say that you are the opposite sex. So similar to homosexuality in that there's a mismatch, but different in that what's mismatch is not your romantic feelings, but your actual sense of what gender you are. Uh, but what causes this? Uh, well, Mark Yarhouse, he's a psychologist at Regent University, professor of psychology, and has counseled uh, focus on sexuality and has counseled lots of people struggling with gender dysphoria. Uh, Yarhouse says the most concise way to answer that question, what causes it, is this. We don't know what causes gender dysphoria. So very helpful. We don't know what causes gender dysphoria. Um, there are a few theories that he reviews. Maybe the most popular is called the brain sex theory. The idea here is that um, sexual differentiation of the, the genitals uh, and sex differentiation of the brain occur at different stages in fetal development. So sexual differentiation of the anatomy of the body, the genitals, takes place in the first two months of pregnancy while sexual differentiation of the brain uh, takes place on the back half of pregnancy and continues even beyond birth. 
And so it's possible, it's thought, that a discrepancy may exist between prenatal genital differentiation and brain differentiation, such that the external genitals develop, for example, as male, while the brain develops as female. So this is one of the main theories of causation, uh, but it's marked by some serious limitations in research. So again, Yarhouse concludes it's best to, to say that we really don't know what causes it. How often does this occur? Um, it's actually not that common. Gender dysphoria um, rises to the lev- that rises to the level of diagnosable um, as, a, as a disorder is quite rare. So the DSM-5, Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, 5th uh, edition, estimates that between 0.005% to 0.014% of adult males and 0.002% to 0.003% of adult females have gender dysphoria. So it's much more common among men. Uh, but these, are, these estimates are based on people who seek out specialty clinics. Um, and so they're actually probably lower than real numbers of people who um, experience this. If we include all the children, adolescents, adults um, who experience this, the numbers are, are probably much higher. Again, um, gender dysphoria is, is something that probably occurs along a spectrum uh, there's a variety of kinds of experiences and intensity of these experiences, and so not everyone would be seeking out one of these specialty clinics or a formal diagnosis. Um, so exact numbers are hard to get. And then what, what are typical responses to gender dysphoria? Uh, most mental health professionals think about gender dysphoria um, and r- responding to it in terms of Uh, the standards of care provided by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. So the standards of care um, from WPATH is the the acronym there, um, or where most people turn to. And the standards of care that they present offer a uh, four-point approach uh, to responding to gender dysphoria. So first, uh, changing gender expression to match one's gender identity. So this would be things like changing your name, hairstyle, um, clothing, things like that. And then second, uh, pursuing psychotherapy to address the negative impacts of stigma and uh, improving body image, finding peer support, dealing with that idea of minority stress. And then third, hormone therapy, which could make a female's body appear more masculine or a male body appear more feminine. Uh, And then fourth and most invasive would be the sex reassignment surgery uh, to alter the primary and or secondary sex characteristics of the body. So that's how, that's how culture is, by and large, thinking about um, responding to and caring for those who struggle with gender dysphoria. And we'll talk more about a Christian response in uh, a few minutes. Uh, but it's just important to, I think, point out, acknowledge maybe for those who haven't thought about this issue much in particular, uh, that people do actually have this experience. Like people are born with same-sex attraction. It's often unchosen. It is a real experience that people have. So how do we reflect on this real human experience, rare though it may be, uh, through the lens of a biblical worldview? So we've already said uh, that a biblical worldview means we're trying to view the world and everything in it through the storyline of the Bible, which is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We're trying to think about all the issues that might come up 
um, through that lens. So beginning with creation then, how do we think about uh, gender dysphoria and transgender issues? Creation. Genesis 1, God creates man in his own image. Uh, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in chapter 2, we get that same story, but with a few more details. God says, it's not good for man to be alone. Uh, I will make him a helper corresponding to him. And then he takes a rib out of Adam and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And then it's on the basis of this kind of description of origins uh, that it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they were one flesh in the beginning, and then God pulled the woman out of the man and distinguishes them from one another, uh, yet they correspond to one another. And then in marriage, specifically in sexual intercourse, uh, the two become one flesh again. It's like a reunion. Uh, Adam lost his rib, but he gains a wife. And then in Matthew 19, uh, when Jesus is challenged, uh, being asked about divorce, he affirms the Genesis account as the norm for answering ethical questions like that. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning male, made them male and female and said, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So his point is that God established a norm by creating a duality of number for sexual union. Uh, So as one author said, binary sexuality for Jesus, just the singular fact that God created us as part of the intentional design as male and female, uh, was the foundation for Jesus for uh, rejecting both polygamy and a revolving door of divorce and remarriage for any cause. And then by extension, other ethical issues could be passed through that same rationale. So one of the guiding norms for a biblical worldview is understanding a creational norm was being established uh, through creation of uh, humanity along uh, the lines of binary sexuality. So then living in accordance with these creational norms that God has uh, established will in the long run be best for humanity in general and each human in particular, which is a point we made about homosexuality as well. Seeking to live in accordance with creational norms in the long run is best for us generally and for each person in particular. I like the way one author put it. Uh, Human beings are ontologically, in the essence of their being, that is. Human beings are ontologically, and not merely in appearance, male and female. And so their deepest fulfillment will come through forms of life that welcome this difference and are structured upon it. So many dichotomies are false, but here's a dichotomy that is an accurate dichotomy. And yet, there's no need to overstate the case. Um, So while there are two biological sexes, uh, there are varying experiences that we all have as male and female. Uh, One study reported, even when there are statistically significant differences between women and men, these differences pale in magnitude beside the variations among women and among men. Or as another author put it, there are huge differences between men and women, But there are also huge differences between men and other men and between women and other women. And so, again, I'm just kind of stringing together some quotes here. Another author says, We want to avoid uh, adherence to rigid stereotypes of what it means to be male and female. 
We want to recognize a range of experiences of our gender and ways of relating to one another as gendered selves through various norms and roles that could be described along a continuum. Um, so, you, for instance, just in regards to manhood, what's the essence of masculinity? What does it really mean to be a biblical man? And there are lots of ideas about that. It's kind of hard to pin down exactly what that is. So you might think of two types of manhood. First is an essentialist appeal uh, to a gender difference that emphasizes aggression, strength, and rationality. Uh, that's what masculinity is. Then there's another view of masculinity called expressive manhood, uh, which says that all of the traits that are now traditionally attributed uh, to women were actually traits that were very strong and maybe predominant in the life of Jesus. And so they suggest men should try to reconnect with their sensitive side. So a man might be described as sensitive and empathetic and aesthetic, and that's just fine. And there might be a woman who you'd describe as linear, just, tough, hardworking, and that may be as it should be as well. Uh, so I think it's helpful uh, to um, think about these distinctions, that there is distinction between male and female that's clear in the creational norms, and yet there's also a lot of overlap. And if we were trying to pin down just the biblical core of femininity or masculinity, it probably wouldn't fit the stereotypes um, that we often have in our heads about those two things. Um, so again, for instance, trying to describe an essence of biblical masculinity uh, based on the Bible, you may remember the book Wild at Heart, um, if you've read that. Uh, what every man wants uh, according to the Bible, a battle to fight, a beauty to rescue, an adventure to live. Uh, I remember reading that in college shortly after it had come out, and I just, I didn't feel particularly feminine, but I just didn't, that didn't resonate with me at all. You know, I'd never really thought about those things and I had a hard time kind of viewing myself in those categories. Um, so, you know, we want to try to avoid these kind of stereotypes or rigid descriptions of, of what biblical masculinity or femininity is. So, yes, God made us female and male, but our experiences within those genders can lie kind of across a continuum, and that's, that's fine. Now, how does the fall affect all of this? Well, in Genesis 3-7, it says, Then the eyes of both were open." Um, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they had been naked and unashamed, uh, and now after the fall they are ashamed, and so they cover up their bodies. So the first result of the first rejection of God is that people feel shame about, they feel awkward about their bodies. So last week we said that one aspect of the fall is that the soul and the body which constitute, this was a couple weeks ago we talked about this, the soul and the body which constitute the human, to, you know, those two pieces together constitute an integrated human, a whole. And yet after the fall, that material and immaterial part of a person are often in tension. We feel them to be at odds with one another. Peter says the passions of the flesh wage war against the soul. We often feel that kind of tension between our bodies and souls. Um, and yet some of that is not sinful. So we said the mismatch of same-sex attraction is not sinful. Um, 
And likewise, we hold that, um, just to repeat that, I said same-sex attraction is not sinful. That experience is not sinful. Same-sex activity, willful, chosen, and going against the norms of, of Scripture would be sinful, but the attraction itself is not. And similarly, we would say that those who experience gender dysphoria, that's not sinful. Um, so that experience of incongruence between biological sex and gender identity is not a sinful thing. It's simply uh, evidence of what we all bear rem- remarkable evidence for, um, that the fall has not left us as we once were. Post-fall human beings are... There's many ways you could finish that <laughs> sentence. You know, there's many words that you could fill in there. Um, One word that has a long kind of historical lineage is the word disordered. Post-fall human beings are disordered. We don't exist exactly the way God created us to, and we don't live in a world that's exactly the way the Creator made it to be. So we still bear His image as people, and we still live in a beautiful creation, and yet we ourselves and all of creation bear the marks of disorder. I think this this distressing lack of congruence between birth, sex, and gender identity can be seen as as one result of the fall. Uh, Not that the lack of incongruence is sinful, but that it represents one form of this sort of disordering that results generally from the fall. So we can affirm that diversity... Uh, is part of God's created intent. That is a good and beautiful thing. You know, our experiences as gendered selves can kind of lie across a continuum, and that that is a, a good thing. That that was true before the fall and would have continued apart from the fall. Uh, but the distress that this diversity causes in some cases, um, where there's this lack of congruence so great that it almost seems the material and immaterial part of a person have been mismatched, you know, that would be something more like a result of this disorder and chaos from the fall. Uh, so while gender dysphoria may be a rare phenomenon, it's, it's actually uh, the same species of problem that we all experience. So uh, those who struggle with gender dysphoria and seek out help, um, you know, they, they've kind of tried to categorize a lot of the, the struggles that those folks have. And Some of the common struggles those with gender dysphoria report are anger and bitterness, lust that may take the form of sexual addiction, a deep unhappiness with their own body, struggling to delight in their relationship with their spouse, children, neighbors, and coworkers. Well, that just sounds like I've just described all of us, right? Everyone in the room. So, um, again, there, there is a particular struggle uh, for some with gender dysphoria, and yet it's the same kind of species of problem that we, that we all um, encounter in ourselves, which is this disordering effect of the fall. Um, so we're fallen, disordered, and we're trying to ask then each one of us with a particular kind of set of problems particular to us, who I am, the problematic pieces of who I am. Um, we're trying to ask then, what does obedience look like? Uh, What does it look like to be faithful to my creator and who my savior wants me to be? Um, So that's that's the question that moves us then toward redemption. How do I live in line with the creator's design and who God has called me to be in Jesus Christ? Redemption, uh, this kind of third act of the biblical drama, is the idea of being set free. 
in terms of a Christian worldview, uh, redemption includes the whole range of new experiences that come about for a person uh, who is freed from the bondage of sin through new life in Christ. So redemption is being made a new creation, uh, being released from bondage to sin by being recreated in the image of Jesus. Second Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So this means that the person who had uh, once been you know, primarily rejecting the creator, suppressing knowledge of him, which should have been obvious to them, because as Paul says, uh, what can be known about God, namely his, his invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, you know, there's a suppression or rejection of the creator that when you become a new creature, you turn, that, you turn away from that. You begin to acknowledge the creator. You begin to acknowledge uh, evidence of him in all the things that he has made. And a person who has made that turn and is be, who has been redeemed and is relating rightly to the creator then asks, what's my purpose and place in creation? How can I fulfill all that God wants me to be? Uh, as part of his creation. Um, So applying that thought to someone who struggles with gender dysphoria, we might say that redemption uh, for someone struggling with gender dysphoria might mean thinking like this. How can I be faithful to the biological design that God has clearly given me? I don't want to reject God's design, especially if being made male or female is central to what it means that we are made in God's image. Uh, then how can I be faithful to the particular God-imaging gender that God has given me? Uh, Then secondly, how can I trust God in the midst of the frustration, pain, and difficulty brought about by this incongruence between my biological sex and this powerful awareness of my gender identity? When that feels like suffering, how can I trust God in the midst of suffering? Uh, And then thirdly, how can I highlight the diverse ways that God permits us to inhabit the gender he has given? Um, So all men don't have to conform to a strict kind of rugged stereotype, muscles, hunting, woodworking. Um, And all women don't have to conform to a a strict flowery stereotype, the nurturing, you know, getting nails done, drinking tea, and um, all of that. Is that in anyone else's stereotype for women? I don't know. Men drink, you know, something other than tea. Anyways, um, don't have to conform to the stereotypes. That's, that's more my point. And then um, those who, who don't have this experience, those who don't struggle with gender dysphoria, uh, should be able to hold out hope to others who do experience this, that um, God can redeem even these kinds of difficult circumstances and make them useful to us as individuals and as a community uh, for his purposes. And then we should be able to point that person forward to uh, eternal glory where we'll all have perfect mental health and be fully integrated humanity again. Which brings us to the last point of the biblical drama, restoration. Uh, When God restores all things in the final day, uh, on that day there will be this beautiful diversity that that doesn't extend to this distressing incongruence. Beautiful diversity will remain. Distressing incongruence caused by it kind of on the outer edges will not remain. Um, We pointed out a couple weeks ago talking about homosexuality that Jesus says in Matthew 22 that there won't be marriage in heaven. Um, 
but we know very little about our sexuality and gender apart from that. We know that we'll maintain our sexual and gender differentiation. You know, Jesus came back. He's kind of our template in regards to resurrection. And Jesus came back. He was resurrected in a body that was recognizable uh, as, as Jesus, as the man that he was. Same body, glorified and perfected to be sure, uh, but still bearing all the marks of sameness, uh, even right down to the scars. So we, we can all look forward to this day where we have resurrected bodies um, bearing the marks of sameness and yet perfected and restored um, uh, and, and fulfilling. You know, all, all of uh, who God has made us to be fulfilled in regards to honoring our creator. Um, not, not in our, the, the kind of crass sense of fu- sexual fulfillment, fulfilling our sexual desires, uh, but in something truer than that, like the transformation of our desires uh, into something that uh, honors the Creator. So then bringing all this together, um, how do we move toward a Christian response uh, to gender dysphoria, to these transgender issues? Uh, a Christian response will include the ways that a, a person responds to their own gender dysphoria, if that's something that they struggle with. It will also include the ways that we as a church uh, respond to those who experience gender dysphoria. Um, or as your house puts it, there, there will be a response both at the individual and the institutional level. So you could think about it in a variety of ways. You could probably add uh, public policy level to that as well, which we won't really talk about much this morning. But at the individual level, I think first and foremost, um, we, we need to demonstrate Christian love, simple compassion in this regard. One transgender person observed uh, transitioning, uh, like sex reassignment surgery, uh, transitioning is the main secular response. Healing through counseling is the main Christian response. Dealing with it daily is the reality for most of us who struggle with it. Um, so as someone who is not dealing with it then, you, know, you may want to try to exercise your powers of empathy toward those who are dealing with it daily, which is the reality for some. One, tra- one transgender Christian shared a, an exchange with a previous pastor. I once explained to a pastor my transgender situation, and he rejected me totally. He said it was something that he could not cope with, so I've kept quiet about it ever since in subsequent churches, as I would not wish to hurt those who cannot cope with who I am. That, that experience, um, you know, two-sentence testimony, kind of... Um, it's a, it reflects a sort of script that um, exists among the transgender community, um, a similar experience, that is, that many have had in relating to the church. Uh, they don't experience it as a safe place to struggle with these issues. We want to be a church where these kinds of issues can be discussed, and those struggling with these things can find patient ears and compassionate hearts and thoughtful responses, not quick um, clean responses. Um, so let me give you one other idea then. So that's, that's the first idea, is just demonstrating compassion, patience, and thoughtfulness in responding to those who are struggling with it. Another idea that comes from Yarhouse's book, um, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, that I think is really helpful is that he, he had introduces three different lenses or frameworks um, through which the church, um, through which these issues can be seen. The first is the integrity framework. 
Um, and then secondly, a disability framework. And then third, diversity framework. So integrity, disability, and diversity. Uh, the integrity framework is the main response of the church. It emphasizes the sacred male-female distinctions and the integrity of the biological sexes. So this reminds us of God's creational intent and that this, and that this is um, fundamental to his design for humanity and what he intends us to be. And this lens, integrity lens, is, is the kind of primary, almost exclusive lens for evangelical Christians. The second lens, then, is the disability lens, where gender dysphoria is viewed as a result of uh, living in a fallen world and, uh, and as a condition that is a non-moral reality, which is kind of the key idea there. It's a non-moral reality. Uh, so then the thought is that the standards of care should be applied in caring for someone struggling with gender dysphoria just as the, whatever the kind of best practices are uh, for helping anyone struggling with whatever disability. And then the third lens is the diversity lens, uh, which highlights transgender issues as reflecting identity and culture that's to be celebrated as an expression of diversity. So Yarhouse points out that it's, it's partly helpful just to identify these different frameworks and to recognize that they exist. Uh, because so many times in conversations sort of with someone outside of your, your circle of thought, maybe from one of these other frameworks, commun- genuine communication is a hard thing because you tend to be talking past each other a lot. He says just kind of recognizing these different frameworks and where people are coming from is helpful in having uh, genuine communication and understanding uh, with another person. Um, and, then, and then he points out, secondly, that there's common ground that we should be able to affirm with each of these frameworks. So the integrity framework is like deep structure. It's the, the theological commitments uh, that we hold as believers, uh, the integrity of sex differentiation. And so we can certainly affirm that. Uh, the disability framework urges us toward compassionate management of gender dysphoria, trying to, trying to do genuine help and care for someone who is struggling um, with this issue. And then uh, the diversity framework uh, provides meaning-making, identity, and community. Uh, community meaning that um, inclusion of diverse expressions... Uh, like across a continuum, as we discussed, within a coherent community. You know, so we're a community defined by the gospel. We're all seeking to accept an identity from Jesus that's rooted in him and who God calls us to be in Christ. Uh, and as we're all doing that together, we're a co- coherent community then, even for those who experience what, what may be sort of fringe or minority sorts of experiences, and that we're all sort of able to collect those who have experiences not common to us all and thus provide identity and community and meaning-making. Which is kind of what I've been trying to encourage throughout this talk, just sort of a relatability to this struggle, though you may not have thought about it much, and compassion in responding to it. All right, and then finally, um, which is one, one topic, you know, one week for each topic that we're covering in this Talking Points class. I feel like there are just so many directions we could go with each of these things. And you may have sort of specific questions in your mind, and I know uh, it may be dissatisfying. We won't be able to get to all of those things. Uh, But I do have just a a few uh, suggestions for application of the things we've just talked about, just sort of raising these topics with some brief uh, description uh, for each of them. So a few quick ideas. First, 
if you're struggling with gender dysphoria, please talk to someone. And it's true with all of these issues that we're going through. If, if you're on the struggle side of any of these issues, we want to be a community where these things are safe. Uh, part of what that means is, is people who are struggling with these things being vulnerable and then people who are not struggling with these things but maybe the listening ear being very compassionate, being very patient and thoughtful in response. Uh, so I would encourage you to um, exercise compassion and empathy. This is a heavy burden uh, to bear alone, uh, to bear silently, but easier, I think, to bear in community. Um, so, you know, sense of fear or shame based on the experiences of others or how others might respond to you um, is understandable. And yet I think, uh, you know, for someone struggling with it, the encouragement would be reach out. For those who might be reached out to, be compassionate, be empathetic and, and listening. Uh, second, for parents, I'd encourage you to discuss, discuss these issues with your children. If your kids are in public school, the conversation may be much more pressing. There may be these conversations regularly at school or interaction with difficult um, questions. And uh, yet, even if your kids aren't in public school, you know, our culture is thinking through these issues. And they're all over the place. And they're, they're issues we ought to be addressing and trying to think through um, as families uh, from a biblical worldview. So if you want more materials on this topic, I'm happy to point some out to you. I've listed a couple on your handout there. There are two YouTube videos that would be great to watch together as a family. They're brief enough um, that it wouldn't be daunting. Uh, they're, um, I think, would raise a lot of questions and conversation uh, for you. Third, Scott asked a couple weeks ago about um, how to refer to a same-sex spouse. Uh, do, you refer, do you refer, you know, he has a same-sex um, spouse at work who he said, do I call this person a husband or not? Um, and that same kind of question comes up as you arise and interact with a transgender person, a man who identifies as a woman. Should I insist on continuing to refer to them as a man? This question is uh, all the more acute in some cases. In uh, New York City, you can now be fined up to a quarter of a million dollars for intentionally misgendering someone by using pronouns they don't prefer. Um, so like I say, our culture is thinking through this issue, and it's, it's pressing for us. So what do we do with that? You know, some, some have said if they're close to you, like maybe a family member, uh, one author said, my gut reaction is to call things what God calls them. In some cases, that may feel too simplistic, though. Like if you're um, interacting with someone that you don't really know or who's kind of at a distance from you, uh, and yet you must interact, like in a, in a, a co-worker kind of setting. So another um, author, Vaughn Roberts, says, respect will mean calling someone by the name they choose to be called. I think what, where we landed a couple weeks ago in several different viewpoints was that basically your Christian convictions aren't on the line over this issue. You know, so you, there's probably some room for just your discretion and your understanding of the situation, your relationship to the person, and you probably shouldn't lose much sleep over uh, how you walk that one out. And then uh, fourth, uh, be a good listener. Um, again, just, you know, if, if someone comes to you struggling with these issues, maybe ask more questions than providing answers initially, thinking through it with them. Uh, another, a, a person struggling with these kinds of issues pointed out, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. In other words, each, each person has their kind of own version of this struggle and, uh, and how to respond to it. And so, 
um, you, you want to listen, you know, not assume that because you know there's a struggle that, you know, you can import everything you've ever heard about transgender issues into this conversation, uh, but rather listen, uh, get a sense of the complexity and the nuance of the particular situation. Another person said um, that this all feels very clear when you're sitting down with your Bible, and just reading your Bible, and then it starts to feel very complex and unclear when you're sitting down with a person who's actually struggling with this issue and trying to make sense of um, kind of the set of things God's given them and, and how to be faithful to him with that.